0: Stanford University. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 44th annual Carlos McClatchy Symposium on Journalism. My name is Joel Brinkley. I'm privileged to be a professor of journalism here at this great university, and all of us are also quite privileged this evening to have with us as distinguished a group of journalists that we could possibly put on a stage at one time. That said, I'm sorry to say that Arthur our chairman of the New York Times, fell ill and was unable to make the trip here from New York. Uh, but I am happy to say that with the Times as well, represented with Martin Nissenholtz, senior vice president of the company. He is in charge of the company's digital operations and new strategy development, which is our topic this evening. I'd also like to introduce Phil Balboni, CEO of Global Post, a wonderful new web-based New site that features the work of more than 65 foreign correspondents in 50 nations around the world. Alberto is not here yet. We'll get to him. And Paul Steiger, former managing editor of the Wall Street Journal, now editor-in-chief of ProPublica, another important web-based journalism site, this one dedicated to investigative journalism. If you haven't seen it, go look. After this event, not now. <laughs> Uh, In the interest of full disclosure, I should tell you that I worked for the New York Times for 25 years and I now write a monthly column for Global Post, but I will strive to be nonpartisan. As the title of this event notes, we're going to talk about the future of journalism and let's begin by stipulating that the nation's newspapers the font of nearly all of the important news printed or aired in the United States are in serious trouble. We held a conference on this very subject, on this very stage, discussing this subject in 2007. And if you read anything, you will have read about this problem. So we are try- going to try not to bemoan and fulminate about the desperate shape of the newspaper industry here once again. Suffice it to say, how could any industry survive with a business model like this one? You pay your newspaper company to deliver an expensively produced product to your front door every morning while the same company provides the same product with numerous enhancements online several hours earlier for free. (laughs) Reminds me of the business strategy the Washington Senators baseball team (laughs) used years ago. Walter Alston, the team's owner, used to tell reporters, our fans like home runs, and we've assembled a pitching staff to please them. (laughs) My hope this evening is that we can consider two strategies for the future, both well represented on this stage. The commercial old media model, I hate to call it the old media since I'm born of it, but that's what it is, and the new nonprofit public interest model. Uh, and let me interrupt. Alberto Iberguin has just arrived. He's the former executive editor of the Miami Herald and is now president and CEO of the Knight Foundation, which funds some of the most interesting and groundbreaking initiatives in the field of new media journalism ventures in the nation or probably in the world. Um, As I said, my hope this evening is we consider these two strategies and the two two biggest questions are can the established media survive in the modern environment and is the new nonprofit model sustainable? No one has yet found a way to staunch the hemorrhaging profits of the nation's newspapers. Already many papers, perhaps most, are hollow shells of what they once were. In many ways, the New York Times is the last man standing. It has not narrowed its ambitions or reduced its investigative journalism or commitment to foreign correspondence, the two areas areas hardest hit at other papers, but this very week the company announced buyouts and layoffs of 100 news staff employees. How long can the Times continue as it does? Global Post and ProPublica only, are only the largest and most ambitious of a raft of new nonprofit journalism sites. And they've already uh, had some significant achievements. Global Post worked out an alliance with CBS News this fall. Uh, earlier, the Associated Press agreed to carry pro publica stories, giving the service national distribution, and it's worked out individual publications agreements for certain stories with numerous papers. Smaller nonprofit journalism sites have sprung up in Minneapolis, San Diego, Austin, Chicago, and many other places, some of them funded by the Knight Foundation. Last month came the announcement that the Bay Area News Group, a collaborative effort of several local news organizations, given $5 million in startup money by, a, bay, by a, a wealthy benefactor, will begin work in the Bay Area soon. All of these ambitious public interest projects rely on what I call the rich uncle financial model. How can they eventually stand on their own given that they give their stories away for free? That's what I hope we'll hear about tonight. These are the questions we will pursue while acknowledging this underlying fact. This issue is as important as any this country faces today for how can a democracy survive without a healthy and aggressive free press? So now I will turn this over to our first guest, Paul, who will talk to us now.
1: Thanks very much, Joel. And and I'm delighted to be part of this august group Um, and to be here back in California where um, I got my start in journalism up the road in San Francisco for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, ProPublica is part, but just one part, of the future of journalism. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, producer of reporting aimed at exposing abuse of power, ineptitude by important institutions, or failure to uphold the public interest. There might have been a role for something like us, even if the business model of newspapers hadn't collapsed. But amid the current revolution um, in news, the role is clear. We can be, if we do our job right, an important bulwark of democracy. Uh, Here's what we are and here's what we do. We have 33 journalists, uh, three in Washington, DC, Uh, the rest of New York. Their work is published in two ways, Uh, first on our own website, um, www.propublica.org, for those of you scoring at home. Um, (laughs) Second, uh, for our deepest and potentially most important work, as Joel suggested, um, by um, publishing them on major media platforms. We give uh, these platforms a temporary exclusive, usually 24 hours. Uh, In return, they give our work significant visibility and uh, increase the chance that it will have major impact. I'll give you an example. Uh, In July, uh, two of our uh, reporters, uh, Charlie Ornstein and Tracy Weber, uh, produced a story uh, that ran on the front page of. Uh, the Los Angeles Times. The story uh, documented how the the nurse licensing board in California um, was doing a horrible job uh, looking at the licenses of nurses who had been um, convicted of doing things like beating up their patients, stealing their patients' painkiller, and being in a, a stupor either drug or alcohol-induced, when the patients faced major treatment issues. Um, It took an average of three and a half uh, years, Charlie and Tracy found, and and as often as six years, for this board um, to pull the licenses or even come to a conclusion about whether to pull a license of um, nurses with this kind of conviction. As a result, the following syndrome would occur. The nurse would do this bad stuff. He or she would be found out, would be fired, would take the license uh, uh, a dozen blocks away to another hospital, and the same cycle would start all over again. Um, Well, this story, as I say, ran uh, on a Sunday uh, on the front page of the Los Angeles Times, detailing example after example of nurses who acknowledged that uh, they had done this stuff and, and said they wondered why their licenses hadn't been pulled, Um, uh, examples of patients who had been permanently harmed as as a result of this. Well, that was a Sunday. The next day on a Monday, the governor uh, fired a majority of the board. And um, the day after that, uh, uh, he replaced them with um, uh, people who were charged with fixing this problem. And they, in turn, replaced the executive director. We have a new new board and a new staff, and um, our uh, reporters will continue to monitor um, whether this produces actual positive uh, positive change in the state. And just so you don't think that um, uh, the uh, due process hurdles were simply too difficult, that this couldn't be done, reporters found that there were other states that dealt with uh, the same problem or similar problems with much, much greater uh, efficiency. This is the kind of work we try to do. Uh, We charge nothing for it. Uh, This is not because um, I think uh, um, that content wants to be free. um, Content doesn't talk to me that way. Um, uh, It's because our overriding mission is to get this work seen by people who will have an opportunity to act on it. And so therefore, since we're well enough funded that we can provide it free, that's what we're gonna do. Um, We collaborate in different ways with different partners. Uh, uh, In some cases, the uh, partner institution will uh, provide additional reporting. When we partner with 60 Minutes uh, uh, and you have a brilliant interviewer like Scott Pelley you don't want to have one of our ink-stained wretches uh, sit there across uh, from the critical interview Um, uh, you want to have somebody like uh, Pelley do that Um, in in other cases um, uh, there's a reporter on the partner newspaper who can um, advance the story significantly so um, we'll do that kind of collaboration and other Other cases, um, uh, the partner paper simply provides editing. Um, uh, Many supplement our our legal vetting with their own. Don't blame them for that. And others simply link to us. Um, But through these um, multiple arrangements, um, we've, we've had considerable success. And in just over a year of full operation, um, we provided affirmative answers to what I think are the three basic um, questions that were asked about our journalistic model when we started. The first question was, could we, with no organizational history, get access um, to important information? Um, uh, you know, one of our reporters said, I'm used to calling up and saying I'm X from the New York Times. Who's going to return my phone call now? Well hello, there are a lot of people who know you by your own name, uh, not just by the name of the New York Times. In other cases, um, when folks uh, saw that we had important information about them and were asking them for their view of that information, they returned our phone calls or returned our emails. So um, uh, that problem was not a problem. Could we get major traditional media... To partner with us? The answer to that is yes. Uh, We've been on the front page um, of the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, uh, Denver Post, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, most of the major um, uh, daily newspapers. Um, We've been on 60 Minutes, 2020, CNBC, CNN, public television, public radio. and most of the uh, uh, news websites, um, uh, Politico, Huffington Post, um, Daily Beast, MSN, and on and on. The one place we haven't been yet um, is in the major serious magazines, um, but we have significant prospects there now. Um, And the final question was, could we dispel the fear that because our lead funders, Herb and Mary and Sa- Sandler from up the road in San Francisco, um, uh, that b- because the Sandler's uh, generally support liberal causes, um, could we dispel the fears that our coverage would lean to the left as well? Um, and the answer to that is is yes. I mean, first of all, um, uh, it's not that hard. I mean, I. I um, edited the Wall Street Journal for 16 years, reporting to a publisher and a CEO who, were, you know, were way more conservative than the Sandlers or liberal, and we were able to keep the Journal's news coverage um, to the middle of the road. And, um, uh, but more importantly, people on the right as well as on the left have picked up our stuff and, and run with it. Uh, just this week, uh, Rush Limbaugh was making a lot of one of our um, stories. i not sure I totally agree with his spin, but um, uh, it, it, it uh, uh, showed what I wanted to show, which is that um, we have stuff that that cuts um, that cuts both ways um, so I think we've proved our journalistic model the next step is to demonstrate long run um, uh, financial um, stability. Uh, that is, we need to diversify our funding. Uh, thanks to a generous grant from the Knight Foundation. Thank you, Alberto. Um, we have the resources to explore the ways to, uh, to, to do that and come up with an optimum strategy for diversifying our funding. Um, the first goal is to meet IRS requirements that kick in, in in 2011, and I think we're well on our way to doing that. Meantime. We'll continue to pound away at making our journalism important to a broad and deeper swath of uh, America. This means um, uh, some work um, that old line organizations no longer can get to because their staff has shrunken. But it also means finding altogether new ways uh, to uncover and communicate important news about our key institutions. The hope is both to help carry on the work of accountability reporting and to help train a new generation of uh, journalists with the skills and passion to do that. Thank you.
2: Joel, thanks for the, uh, for the kind introduction, and uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's, uh, first of all, so nice to see so many people who have come out to be concerned about the future of journalism and uh, so many people who are both younger and older. That's, uh, that's a great thing. I hope to intend to paint a, an optimistic portrait of the future of journalism for you. And I want to give you a uh, full report on Global Post. Um, and I can tell you it's a very uh, optimistic uh, report on our first year. This is, uh, for me, my 43rd year in journalism. Uh, I've worked in virtually every part of uh, the media, uh, starting as a general assignment reporter at the Richmond Times-Dispatch in Virginia in 1967, at a time when our professional (coughs) horizons seemed uh, truly limitless. but for all of these years through the good times and the bad, uh, I've always been an optimist about our profession, believing that we could come overcome all the obstacles. And there have certainly been many of those, uh, especially the rush to media consolidation in the uh, 90s and the falling standards of public service in so many news organizations. But now we have arrived at a truly transformative moment in journalism's history. And I think it's honest to say that the outcome is unknowable as we stand or sit here tonight. I think the question for each of us is what part will we play? Will we choose to play in creating a better and stronger future? There are many prophets of doom about the future of news. I'm sure you've been reading a lot about them. I happen to believe that they're wrong. But the road ahead is not going to be easy, and there is not going to be any grand solution. The future of journalism is going to be created one step, one entity, and one new model at a time. Now, at Global Post, we've put our arms around one of the most underserved parts of the journalism landscape, and that's international news. And I'm proud to report that we have made excellent progress since our launch in January. We built an exceptional team. We have superb reporting on important stories that can be found in few, if any, other places. We have strong brand awareness for a just-born entity, a very substantial online audience that continues to grow, and three developing revenue streams that offer real promise that we will achieve achieve self-sufficiency without needing to raise additional capital. Indeed, I assembled our board of directors uh, just a week ago today in Boston. We approved our 2010 budget and five-year plan, and we have projected that we will be profitable in 2012. Now, Global Post is my third journalism enterprise that I have created and built literally from the ground up. The first is the nightly television news magazine, Chronicle, which will celebrate its 28th anniversary on the air in Boston this January. Chronicle is seen as the most successful local television program in American broadcasting history, and it is still winning the 7.30 to 8 p.m. time period every weeknight against all competition. Most importantly, it's a beacon of quality and civility in an often dreary local television landscape. The second enterprise is NECN, New England Cable News, now 17 years old. It's the largest local news channel in America, reaches 4 million homes in the region, and has won every major national broadcast journalism award. One of my original partners, the Hearst Corporation, recently sold its interest in the network to Comcast. And in a stark departure from most media transactions these days, the Hearst interest sold at a handsome profit. These accomplishments I tell you for one reason, because they demonstrate my lifelong belief that excellence in journalism can, indeed it must go hand in hand with building a good business. Great journalism without a vibrant business to support it sows the seeds of its own demise, just as larger profits for their own sake in a news enterprise create shallow content and endless pandering to the audience. These are the values that I brought to Global Post, which is certainly the most challenging new enterprise of my career and one that I think holds the greatest promise. In late March, the New York Times said, quote, Global Post has begun offering a mix of news and features that only a handful of other news organizations can rival. I wanted to thank Mr. Salzberger for that kind attention, but unfortunately he's ill tonight, so I'll, I'll thank Martin in his place. Uh, it was a notable accomplishment uh, for an entity that didn't exist before January 12th of this year. And you may have seen, and I think Joel noted, our announcement uh, just last month about our partnership with CBS News to help them with international coverage using our network of correspondents around the world. This arrangement is financially rewarding to us, of course, but far more importantly, it helps to expand awareness and credibility of our brand and bring more people to our site. We've also built partnerships with a broad array of media organizations from the Huffington Post to Reuters to um, the O'Reilly Factor on Fox News to AOL and to many others, all of whom simply respect the quality and the honesty of our reporting. We've also used social networking and social bookmarking sites in a coordinated and aggressive marketing strategy designed to build our audience base. And in September, nearly half a million unique users came to Global Post. Almost three million have come to our site since we launched. We should reach our year-end goal of 600,000 monthly unique users And we've set a target of exceeding 1 million in 2010. And those numbers are starting to get significant. And the audience is stunningly global. And one of the things that impresses me as much as anything else is that every single month since we've launched, we've had visitors from more than 200 countries. I don't know how many of you know how many countries there are in the world. The United Nations recognizes about 184 the State Department maybe a few more or a few less. Um, But we have had 230 countries, all but North Korea, Chad, (laughs) and a couple of others have visited our site. So it's amazing how in a short period of time, if you have the right content and do the right things, that you can truly put your arms around this big world of ours. The foundation of Global Post is our correspondent core, more than 70 highly talented journalists who are resident in some 50 countries. They're veteran foreign correspondents, mid-career professionals, and younger journalists, but they all share a passion for being out in the world. Our geographic reach is among the broadest of any U.S. or British news organization, and we are committed to full coverage of all regions of the world, and we're particularly proud of our reporting on Africa, South America, and Asia. I want to say a few words about the compensation model for our correspondents because it's gotten a lot of attention. Uh, And it is certainly central to our business plan. They are not full-time employees, and there is no way we could start and build a new business with that kind of cost structure. We do, however, sign long-term contracts with our correspondents. We guarantee them a fixed amount of monthly compensation, and we grant them shares in our company. So they have a financial stake in our success. And that's unusual in journalism. This model of compensation works well for Global Post, obviously, but it also works well for our correspondents. However, we know that they are bearing personal financial risk, being out in the world in that way, just as we are bearing business risk. For some, Global Post's monthly compensation is the foundation for their income. For others, it's an attractive addition to an already successful career. But overall, we're dedicated to improving their financial well-being as our business grows and strengthens. A lot has been written about our business model, and I want to give you a very candid report on our progress so far. First of all, we've created a highly efficient operation, and we enforce strong fiscal controls. In this inaugural year, in which so many things were simply unknowable, we will come in almost 10% under budget in our total costs, and that is a remarkable accomplishment. We will also be able to hold our costs within a tight range for as long as needed to reach profitability. Now, journalists generally don't like to talk about efficiency, productivity, and cost controls, but I've learned that all are essential in both old and new media worlds you want to be successful today in the business that I am now in, you have to be tough on costs and you have to pay attention to every financial detail. The swiftest route to failure is through overspending. We've created three distinct revenue streams to support Global Post, advertising on our site, syndication of our original content to newspapers and websites, and radio and television networks both in the U.S. and abroad, and a paid membership service called Passport that offers additional content and additional benefits for an annual fee of from $50 to $99. Now, launching a new business into the teeth of the worst economic downturn in more than 70 years is a very tough way to come into the world. And our revenue performance was certainly hurt, especially advertising. It's hard enough to get the attention of ad agencies as a new brand and even harder to claim a share of their clients' money. Nevertheless, we won a lot of respect from the ad community this year. People saw us, they listened to our story, and a few of them even bought us. We're honored to have as clients the Bank of America, (coughs) Liberty Mutual, Singapore Airlines, Delta Airlines, Merrill Lynch, and a number of others. And importantly, we're very well positioned to grow our advertising business in 2010 and new clients are arriving each week. Syndication has been our best success story so far. We'll achieve 80% of our revenue budget um, for this year. We have already booked 50% of our revenue budget for 2010. We have more than 20 clients including the New York Daily News, the New York Star-Ledger, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the South China Morning Post, the College Times in Dubai, CBS News, and quite a number of others. And here, too, new clients are signing on with us on a regular basis. That brings us to Passport, which is our most innovative revenue source. To build it, we had to fashion a new strategy for generating consumer revenue online, create special content in a separate site build an e-commerce backend, and boy, that was pretty challenging, and figure out what to charge and how to market the service. Passport launched in April, and while we're still on a steep learning curve, our excitement about the potential of Passport is undiminished as we close in on about 500 paying members this year. It's admittedly a very modest start, but we can now see a path to gaining 20 to 30,000 members and that is going to significantly help to balance our total revenue structure and allow us to keep the main global post site free. So here's the only pitch you'll hear tonight. I encourage you when you go home, fire up your laptop, go to the Passport information page, read about it. If you're so moved, subscribe to Passport. I think you'll find it to be intriguing in content and intriguing in the special benefits that it offers. For example, you can vote on stories, and we listen to that. Our editor, our passport editor, posts the most meritorious stories. You can vote on stories. Those stories will be the ones that we cover. We do weekly conference calls with our correspondents. You can get on that call. You can ask questions from our correspondent in Beijing or Delhi or Bangkok or Berlin or Paris or Johannesburg, or wherever the case might be. Nobody else, to the best of my knowledge, does that. If we're going to preserve great journalism in America, someone does eventually have to pay the bill. I was an early believer in what's now called online monetization, and I made it an important part of the initial 2006 business plan for Global Post. Today, with the economic underpinnings of the mainstream media in distress, Movement to some form, some form of paid content model online is simply a survival issue for many publishers. Global Post takes on these challenges as a for-profit enterprise. That doesn't mean we have any less respect for our colleagues like Paul Steiger and his ProPublica, who have created excellent non-profit journalism institutions. Indeed, we hope to work with major foundations that are interested in supporting our mission of giving Americans access to high-quality reporting on our dangerous and complex world, and we see real promise in such (coughs) partnerships. I do, however, believe that the discipline of the marketplace can make a news organization stronger and more likely to be self-sustaining on a long-term basis. And covering your annual operating costs is an inescapable reality, no matter what your source of funding may be. The most difficult challenge for for for-profit journalism is building and sustaining a high-quality, principled news organization that is also a commercial success. That is something that I have done for my entire career, and I am confident that I can do it again with Global Post. If journalism is going to have a better future, and I, I hope uh, you're seeing believe strongly that that is the case, no matter how dire some c- circumstances seem, then my belief is that journalists themselves must take hold of that future and build new models of journalism that are high in quality and financially sound. And this chance to take hold of the future is really the great challenge and the opportunity of our time. Journalists should be the ones to build the next generation of profitable, high-quality news franchises, and the Internet is indisputably the place to do it. When you think about it, this should be our golden age because we can ride on the back of the most powerful medium of communication in human history, and it's open to all. We need to unleash the latent entrepreneurship that resides undiscovered, admittedly, in many journalists. And at Global Post, we're dedicated to instilling that spirit in our staff and to taking advantage of this enormous opportunity to give Americans the breadth and quality of international news that they deserve. It's a hard road, and I can tell you that journalism entrepreneurship is definitely not for the faint of heart. But an exciting future awaits us if we have the courage and the will to seize this historic moment. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you, Joel, and uh, thanks so much for coming out tonight. Arthur sends his regrets. I know he wanted to be here, uh, but as, uh, as Joel said, he's taken ill. Um, Joel's given me about ten minutes to talk about the transformation of the New York Times. Um, I can't do that. I mean, that's, nobody can do that. Maybe the, the best poet on earth can do it. I'm not one of them. So I'm just going to take three pieces. We can talk about anything you want after we're done but I'm going to take three pieces of this transformation and try to elucidate them for you tonight. Um, if you rewind about five years, and, and there's a, a gentleman in the audience named Jeff McGee who is a, a Knight Fellow here at Stanford who was part of our organization. When did you leave, Jeff? About, about five years ago? Okay, so it's, the time flies when you're having fun. Um, we, we were a, the, the digital operations of the New York Times were a, we're in a totally separate building with a totally separate staff. The, the text-based copy that flowed out of our print systems would come to us, we would massage that copy, and we would put it up on the web. We had, I don't know, maybe a hundred people doing that, not just doing that, but, but in the, that organization. We made a decision about four years ago, and it was really Arthur's decision, to integrate these operations, to integrate the offline operation with the online operation. To, in essence, infuse the DNA of the digital operation into the print operation. And that was an incredibly difficult thing to do because the fact is the print operation had existed for 160, 155 years along along its own track. The digital operation was a young, vibrant business on its own track and the two were really on quite separate futures. But the reason we integrated these operations was to do really two things. The first was to take the 1,100 or 1,200 people in the newsroom at that time and basically turn them from simply working on a print product to multi-platform journalists. And and that's, that's quite a trick, let me tell you. The second thing was to take the advertising department and take them and turn them from simply selling print advertising to multi-platform advertising sales folks. And in this way, we would, we would transform ourselves from a small online digital operation and a very large print operation to a very large multi-platform operation. That will take years to happen. We've been at it three or four years and I think we've made enormous progress. And I will just give you one statistic that I think is, is very, very telling along this, along this road. If you would rewind, if I were, was standing up here three years ago, and you look out at, at nytimes.com, which is the website of the New York Times, and you ask yourself, what percentage of the, the journalism that's used on the Times website was coming from the New York Times newspaper? the number would probably have been 98 or 99 percent. We were maybe creating one or two special multimedia features a week. Today, that number is 20 percent. And it's by far the fastest growing part of the website. And I can pretty much guarantee you that if I come back here two years from now, it'll be 40 percent. So what's happening at the New York Times is that we're transforming the operation not just from the perspective of having a website and having a newspaper, but from the but from the innards of the journalism, from the creation of new forms of journalism, and those forms are are married to the technologies of the digital age. So, you know, I, I think I, I think um, Phil mentioned a, a golden age of journalism, and I, I honestly believe that, and I believe it not just because you know the internet is a global distribution platform. In fact. Um, uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon has a wonderful saying. He says, the web giveth and the web taketh. And and let me assure you that's true. The web giveth this global platform, this unbelievable distribution channel, but the web taketh your distribution locks. It taketh the the things that protected you that built a moat around your business in the past. And it, it taketh that from print, it taketh that from broadcasting, it taketh that from all traditional media. And so at the same time as it's take, taken these assets away, it's given us this new stuff. But in order to take advantage of this new stuff, we need to marry what we're doing in the newsroom to the, to the attributes of these new platforms. And that's where that statistic comes in. Because I think what's about to happen is that we're about, we're, we've, 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 we've integrated the newsroom, We've now begun to create, more than begun to create, these new forms of storytelling. And we're about to enter a phase now where the technology is, is completely untethered from the desktop. And so, what people are about to, to, to get very, 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 very soon, in my view, and you can begin to see it with the Amazon Kindle, you certainly see it with the iPhone, you see it with a plethora of, of mobile devices that are not quite there yet for widespread um, sort of reading and experience. But we're, we're very, very close to having a platform that I think is going to be truly exciting from the perspective of multimedia journalism. And when that platform emerges, and I think it's going to emerge I- I within the next year, you're going to see a sea change in the way that journalism is created. And, and we are prepared to take that on at the New York Times as a result of this integration. So, you know, pa- pa- part of what you read, you sort of read... You know, the news about the business model and all of that. What you don't read is that we've gone from having a hand... When Jeff was in the organization, we maybe had six developers. We now have over 100 developers at the New York Times. And that's very important because, you know, software developers are the engines of innovation. Marrying those software developers to the journalism is what makes that new storytelling possible. It it makes data visualization possible, it makes animatics possible, it makes it possible for us to have all sorts of new things on the website that are engaging to people on these new digital devices. And I I can assure you, if all we were doing was porting print journalism to these digital devices, we would have no future. There would be no future at the New York Times. So everything begins with the journalism and everything begins with an understanding of how to innovate on these platforms. when you read about what's happening at the New York Times, sometimes you don't read about, you know, the 100-plus software engineers we have, we, the, the, the information architecture team, which is, you know, now 20 people. All of these new skill sets, all of this DNA being insinuated into the organization so that we can compete in this new digital age. I think, I'm, I think I've gotten through just about 10 minutes. I, I'm going to stop now. I'm sure you want to hear about the pay versus free debate. I'm happy to go into that, but I, I have, there's another colleague here who has, has, has his say, so I'll, I'll stop now and, and we'll pick it up in a few minutes.
4: Well, I think, I think um, for me it's about uh, tomorrow because I woke up on East Coast time. So, so, no. so, but I was, but just listening to what you were saying, uh, Martin, it, it, it's it's exactly why I think this is this really is uh, such an exciting time. Elizabeth Eisenstein, uh, who's a professor at uh, the University of Michigan, writes about uh, the age of Gutenberg printing and the and the age really just post Gutenberg, and she reminds us that before the printing press, the monks illuminated the manuscripts and gave copies of the Bible to the people that ought to have it. Uh, Not just anybody could have it, only the certain people would have it. There was order. The monks were like the reporters used to be. And, And then all of a sudden came this crazy idea of a printing press and this fantastic thing called literacy began to take hold and people didn't know. How do we trust print? How do we how do we know what to believe? How do we know when anybody can print a book? When anybody can can disseminate ideas? How do we uh, how do we go back to that kind of order? That's the, the. I think we're living in a very analogous time, and I find that uh, a, a wonderfully exciting time uh, to live. I happen to be in the very privileged position of uh, of being not the person who has to do these things, like my three colleagues who just spoke, um, but somebody who is in the position of supporting these ideas wherever, uh, wherever we find them. Uh, Knight Foundation was started by Jim and Jack Knight uh, some 60 years ago to promote excellence in journalism and to promote communities where they had uh, interest. We've, we've taken that to mean today uh, that our goal is informed engaged communities um, and we do that in the by, we do that on the journalism side uh, through the support of organizations um, that we think are experimenting uh, with where the, with with ideas that uh, that uh, that will take us into the future we had been uh, up until about three years ago we had been uh, funding a lot of, of uh, endowed chairs, uh, we had been funding. We were by far the biggest funder of journalism education uh, projects in uh, uh, in the United States, and we decided to admit that we really didn't know where things were going. We didn't know um, for a lot of reasons, but really there were three big ones. One was we didn't know where things were going because of the technology, and it wasn't just the technology that is obvious and available, the fact that all of us can be in communication with almost anybody around the world, even while we sit here, it's that we don't know what that technology is going to be used for uh, when it actually um, gets, gets to be popular. The uses of the technology uh, that will take uh, the, the purpose of it someplace other than where the inventor uh, meant for it to be. We don't know in journalism what the meaning is Of all of this collaboration that is going on, that that uh, that uh, that uh, Paul mentioned earlier, ProPublica, I don't think could have happened five years ago, ten years certainly not ten years ago, because I don't think, however good your journalism is, Paul, I don't think the editors of the Wall Street of the you at the Wall Street Journal wouldn't have accepted ProPublica. Right. Um, The the Washington Post wouldn't have done it. And and uh, and Martin, the kind of collaboration that you're talking about, and that is increasing at the New York Times, um, simply uh, wouldn't have happened. Where does where does all of that uh, where does all of that lead lead us? And and perhaps most importantly, we don't know where things are going because we don't know what it means for the consumer to own the process. We don't know what it means uh, for the consumer to own the information. And we don't know, I think, really what it means uh, for the consumer to really be able to act on the information, whether it's seeing a shirt that you like, that you click and buy in the same or another color, or whether it's uh, sending the the, the particular uh, bit of news information around uh, uh, halfway around the world to a thousand uh, or one or a hundred people. So. We decided instead to fund experiments. Uh, Instead of teaching best practices about a world we couldn't figure out, uh, we decided to fund experiments and began um, by offering $5 million a year. And I would encourage any of you who have ideas uh, to check it out because the window is still open for this year's (laughs) contest. It's $5 million a year for ideas that will deliver news and information on digital platforms to geographically defined communities. That is as as simple and as complex as it sounds. Um, We decided uh, to support universal digital access in the United States. We decided to study um, all of these uh, uh, different uh, uh, new ways of of, uh, delivering information, and we decided we would ensure in all of our activities, that all of the information uh, that we gathered, all of the code, all of the projects, uh, would always be made absolutely public. So in the first place, the experiments, the news challenge has uh, spawned projects like that some of you may know about, um, some that were mentioned earlier tonight, projects like EveryBlock, Um, Spot.us. Spot.us allows uh, journalists to pitch their stories Say, I want to do, like a a woman is doing now, she wants to do a story on a garbage patch in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, There is a possibility that the New York Times, so I read in the New York Times, might actually publish her story. She said she needed $10,000. She puts it up on spot.us. People bid or people pledge uh, in small amounts, and eventually she got the money and is doing the story is that by itself going to change um, uh, journalism. I don't think so, but I think it's an interesting early experiment uh, with allowing the with allowing the users, allowing the readers to participate in deciding which stories <clears throat> get lighted, which stories uh, actually uh, will get done. And that project has moved from a startup in San Francisco, and we've moved it now to a a second-stage project at the University of Southern California, School of Journalism and Engineering. Um, We've we've been working with Tim Berners-Lee, who, uh, with all due respect, as I mentioned to the Knight Fellows earlier uh, today, with all due respect to Al Gore, Tim Berners-Lee actually did invent the World Wide Web. Um, And uh, he is an engineer. He teaches uh, at MIT he did not take a patent if you can imagine it on the world wide web uh, because he believed and believes that it should be free and universal and his biggest concern is the lack of authenticity on the web so Tim came and, and asked for uh, for funding to do a research project on on how to tackle this and I thought you know he must he must want ten thousand fact checkers he must want a great copy desk in the sky but no he's that would be my old newspaper man solution his solution as an engineer is he wants to write code so that every one of you every one of us can be our own fact checker I don't know so please don't ask me how you do that um, I do know that he's working on it that he's developed code and that it's being tested not today uh, by the Associated Press um, we've We funded projects at the Media Lab at MIT um, to apply in real life the kinds of of, uh, projects that they've been doing for years. Uh, We have engaged community foundations that exist uh, all around the country to meet the information needs uh, of their communities. We had 20 projects in the first year. We'll have another 20 projects Uh, this year. We have funded uh, news, news organizations like The Voice of San Diego. Paul mentioned that we're uh, supporting ProPublica, uh, MinPost Min in, in Minneapolis, Chi Town, which did not work, uh, Chi Town Daily News, uh, uh, Gotham Gazette, New Haven Independent, Vill- Village Soup in, uh, in Maine. It is really important to look at, I think, to look at uh, organizations. Some of them are nonprofit. Some of them are for-profit. All of them have local support. Um, we're also supporting the Texas Tribune, which uh, just started. We will be announcing our support for the uh, San Francisco project uh, that was mentioned uh, a little while ago. It's it is essential to look at all of the, to, to to support all of these, experiment with all of these, see how these see what makes. Uh, some of them work. See what makes ProPublica apparently work uh, but Chi-Town, which, is, which just closed down, uh, not work. What we have to learn um, what, what are the things that made one make one succeed uh, and the other one doesn't. And then um, we've also engaged in, in a little bit of policy with the Knight Commission on Information Needs uh, at the Aspen Institute with the City University of New York uh, looking at business models uh, and and advocating as strongly as we can uh, for universal digital access. It is a fact that today you, to apply for a job at McDonald's or at uh, Walmart, you have to apply online. Uh, if you don't have access, you can't apply for a job like that. Uh, so who's talking about equality? And it's also a fact that some Forty percent of America doesn't have uh, un- doesn't have uh, broadband access, and it doesn't have it because it is blocked from having it by poverty, by living in rural areas, or often because of age. And so, this, it seems to us, is a is a good and proper place for government to step in, not to subsidize newspapers, in my belief not to talk about content, not to be the provider of information, but to be the creator of the network on which information rides, to be, to to ensure that 100% of Americans have uh, universal digital access, as surely as 100% of Americans are able to ride on the interstate highway system uh, that was built during the Eisenhower administration, And they didn't care whether you drove a Ford or a Cadillac. They didn't care whether you drove for commerce or for pleasure. They did care that the nation be connected uh, with – be interconnected with a a network of roads. And you could even make – going back uh, 100 years before that to the Lincoln administration doing essentially the same sort of thinking uh, with the railroad that connected uh, the east and the west of the United States. In five years, um, uh, Joel had asked us to to think about where we'd like uh, to be in five years. In five years, I I don't think we'll be there, but I would love to be uh, able to go back to teaching best practices. And I don't think we'll be there because, as a professor at MIT recently put it, on a scale of one to ten, with ten being a uh, a mature ecosystem in of media, of new media, we're probably somewhere around, 2 uh, We're probably just beginning to figure out, we've, we're beginning to figure out how these things that used to be science fiction actually are real and how we might uh, actually begin to use them. But eventually, that's, um, that's our hope. Um, and, and teaching the full, accurate, contextual search for truth in a digital age will be great work for this foundation um, maybe not in five, but in fifteen years from now. Thank you. Let
0: me ask if any of you have anything you want to say in response to anything that has been said.
3: Uh, just a small point on the uh, on the Tim Berners Lee project. Um, uh, if, you, if you're interested in that project, actually, he did a wonderful speech at the TED conference this year, and it's on the web at, I guess, www.ted.com. It's called The Web of Linked Data. So if you're interested in the speech, go look at it. It's a great speech.
0: Well, I'd like to ask each of you one question, and then we will open the floor to questions. Um, Paul, perhaps you saw, and if you haven't, it sitting right there in front of you, the report that... Uh, Len Downey and Michael Schutzen put together and published this week and among the things they recommended was that because the news media perform a public service, the government should provide some funding for I guess not even the microservices. Taxpayers like taxpayers are rebelling. <laughs> <laughs> The government should, in some manner, provide some funding for it. Now, I can't imagine Len Downey suggesting that even two years ago, but somehow he believes uh, we've reached that point. What do you think about that?
1: Um, I don't have any, you know, fundamental, um, a fundamental aversion to the government providing support f- uh, for journalism, as long as it's the right support and doesn't give them uh, the opportunity to, to uh, get their hands on content I mean from the time of um, uh, George Washington we've had uh, second class um, uh, postal rates which were a subsidy to initially newspapers and then newspapers and and um, magazines and we've had um, public television and public radio which uh, uh, which I think uh, most Americans um, approve of and I can see a um, uh, an increase in in funding for um, uh, that, that run along those lines, in, in – perhaps in the terms that that uh, um, uh, Len and Michael um, uh, suggest. But I don't think that that that's a panacea. I think that that um, uh, uh, journalism needs to find a blend of of for profit and Nonprofit um, uh, and simply volunteer activities that take full advantage of this um, incredible new distribution um, technology and and uh, uh, and allow for what each can do um, uh, to focus on you know focus on those areas of best uh, best for performance. I mean, I think that for the kind of investigative reporting that, that we do. What the public markets uh, provide may have to be supplemented for a long time by um, uh, by philanthropy. I don't think that's a good rule, a good role for government funding because part of what investigative reporting does is investigate uh, investigate the government. So, um, uh, but I agree with Phil that um, a lot of this has got to come from um, for profit commercial activities the di- di- discipline of the marketplace is is a um, is a strong discipline there are areas where we'll need other kinds of, of support and, and um, so I think we'll be looking at a mixed model
0: would you take money from the government if it were properly structured
1: um, would I take money from the government not if it if if it were um, direct um, uh, but I take money from the government now, because um, uh, the tax code allows people to make gifts to ProPublica, Pro, Pro which they can deduct from their taxes, and I see yeah, no wait problem wait a minute, Paul.
4: It. Hang on. I mean, they, it allowed, the government allows somebody to deduct when they've made a choice. That's not the government deciding, we like
1: what they're publishing over at ProPublica. That's what That's I'm, I'm saying, so that, 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 that I'm happy to take that kind of subsidy. I'm not happy to take a subsidy. Where a government official says i'll give you um uh i'll give you money um uh now um how about uh focusing on my political opponents with or not coverage
4: sure. right and, and in and in many governments you also find the the uh, the subsidy is in the form of uh of uh, advertising uh, <laughs> until the next administration comes in and decides uh, they don't like the kind of news that they're publishing and they withdraw the advertising or this the subsidizing of uh... of uh... of newsprint of of paper i think it's a terribly problematic um, proposition to have uh... to have government in an in an age of uncertain uh, of uncertainty and with so many so many new ways of of uh... of manipulating information i think it's a very problematic uh... proposal
2: Please. Yeah, I second that, that motion? Um, I brought this report with me tonight um, to show you it's called The Reconstruction of American Journalism. Um, I happen to sit on the board of Columbia Journalism School, and we commissioned this report, and it's a fine report written by Len Downey, the former executive editor of the Washington Post and a professor uh, at Columbia School of Journalism, but it's entire thrust is toward um, uh, non-profit journalism and uh, roles for the government with which I feel uh, not comfortable and I think the right thing is that there's a struggle to find how to replace diminished resources at particularly American newspapers and I was saying to Paul Steiger as we were walking over one of the better recommendations I thought in this report is that public radio and public television all across America, 200 or more of each of these in communities large and small, have really taken with a few exceptions, San Francisco has one, Boston where I live has another, um, taken some good steps in local news, but for the most part they're not on the field of battle at all. And I think that there could be ways to uh, through gentle persuasion and other incentives to get public radio and television involved in p- providing a news reporting service in their communities that would augment diminished r- resources by, um, by local papers. Uh, but I would, whether I agree or not, I brought it because I would commend it to you. you I'm sure you can get it from Columbia University, and it's very thoughtful and, and well-written.
0: Okay, Bill, I have a question for you. You have a great site, and I'm happy to write for it, but I wonder about having all those freelancers who also have other allegiances. My former paper just got into a little bit of trouble when it was discovered that the technology columnist, David Pogue, was also writing and selling books on the subject that he was reviewing. And uh, uh, Clark Hoyt, the uh, public editor, Called them out on in the paper. Now you have seventy-five correspondents around the world who have other allegiances, including me.
2: Yes. What well, I, I know, you're a person of the <laughs> utmost character. Of course, <laughs>
0: uh, of course. <clears throat> um,
2: it does take uh, good vetting up front, and we have good editors who are looking at the copy and paying close attention to it in all the appropriate journalistic ways, but. Sometimes um, the art of the possible is where you need to be. And there is simply no way to do what I set out to do in any other manner. And then you apply strong controls and and good oversight and good judgment. I mean, that's why, you know, if you've spent 43 years in a profession, you should know a lot about managing news people. I don't think, uh, Joel, that um, we have any uh, real problems, but I would grant you that with anything, even with full-time employees, you can run into difficulties, and we know of examples of that where you can be taken to task. So I'm very proud of our team. I mean, if you go on our website, you read their biographies, they're all there. We hide nothing. Uh, It's a fine, fine group of journalists.
1: Do you have an explicit code of conduct, um, that you say, you know, if you have a conflict, you may not write on this subject?
2: We we do, uh, Paul, and we have published a field manual, actually, for all of our correspondents, which uh, is sent out. In addition, we make them sign a contract uh, that is fairly evolved uh, that outlines their responsibilities, ethical and otherwise.
0: Martin. Uh, This morning... The uh, Times company reported an operating loss of, I think it was 24.5 million, which is better than a year ago, but still a loss. Um, many people in the newsroom, my longtime friends, feel as if they are living in an Indian summer at the Times, that eventually the problems facing the entire industry are going to catch up with the Times in a much more aggressive way than they have in the past. Are they wrong?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think they are. I think they are wrong. I, I, you know, I'm not obviously the chief financial officer, but I think on a, uh, uh, I think actually the quarter had an 80 million dollar cash flow profit, which means that you know, in terms of generating cash in the business, um, you know, the business was quite quite profitable. Um, there were special items that that, that caused the, uh, the the loss, but anyway, you can go into our financial disclosures and read 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 about that. Um, I think, look, this is a period of, of great change. All of, all of my colleagues on this panel have, have talked about that. And change is, is hard. It's, it's not going to be a simple matter of flipping a switch and having us go from one era to another. And that's part of the reason I talked about the, the organizational implications of, of, of this change, not just um, the technological ones. Um, but I do think, and just this is just speaking for the New York Times now, um, that we are going to come out of this um, as a much larger, more global, more powerful organization in the end. I fear mostly for the the very local uh, newspapers who don't have the scale, who don't have the um, the the uh, the audience size that don't that don't have the um, the, the simply the mass. To, 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 to potentially operate in a, in a world like, like this more than I do uh, an, an operation like the New York Times. I think at the end of the day, Joel, there are going to be um, you know, three or four you know, great global news organizations. I don't think it's going to matter whether they come from broadcasting, cable, newspapers. The, the heritage of, or, of the organization is much less important than the organization's ability to innovate. So we may see, you know, the BBC out there, we may see the New York Times out there, we may may see CNN out there. They they are going to be large global news operations. We're the, uh, we we operate today by far the largest newspaper owned website in the world as measured by reach. Um, The fifth largest news site um, in the world as measured by reach and the only newspaper website in the top five. So I think what we've managed to do is take this asset and really expand it. And as I said, you know, there is there, there's a, there's a tough, tough transformation underway. It will take a while, but I think we're going to come out the other end uh, even more vibrant and, and more exciting than we've been in the past 160 years. But I couldn't get up in the morning and do my job if I didn't believe that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. I think lots of people who read the Times want to know what is the prospect, Why? Would the Times charge for its website? What's the benefit? What's the liability? Well, I
3: think you know you have to strip out the emotion from that d- that decision. I mean, what we what we really want to do is is create a business model over time that essentially does two things: it, it maximizes revenue and profit, and it and it is not necessarily uh, vulnerable to the, um, s- the, the the cycles of one business. Now, on on the first notion. Um, it's very, very complex. The, the, the business model and the implication of the business model is, you know, dependent upon um, the conversion rates off of your you know, most loyal users. That is how many people who read your website would ultimately be willing to pay for it, the price they would be willing to pay, against the growth rates of the advertising business. So it's a, it's a fairly complex model and you basically just have to look at it and say, you know what, I think advertising is going to grow at this rate over the next five years. I think we can get these conversion rates off of our base. I think that these people will pay this amount of money. And at the, at the end of the day, nobody knows. So that's the, that's the one part of the decision. The second part of the decision is it is always better, I think, to have multiple revenue streams when you're dependent upon one revenue stream like advertising. And, and we're living through that today. I mean, last year at this time, the Times on the Web was growing at an incredible pace. There was no one talking about paid websites. The recession hit, the deepest advertising downturn since the Great Depression set in. We have, you know, a, a very, very problematic economy, and now those growth rates have, 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 have you know, moderated considerably. So. You know, would it be better to have a second revenue stream to smooth those growth rates out? Yeah, typically that second revenue stream doesn't grow as fast as advertising, though, in in the good times. So it's complex. You strip the emotion out. And, you know, as business people, you you try and maximize for revenue and profitability.
1: So what are you going to do? (laughs) You know what?
3: I um, promise not to ask. You, you <laughs> promise not to, but I knew someone would. And, and, and the fact is, we, we haven't yet made that decision. We're still working through uh, exactly the, you know, the, 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 the kinds of – we're having this discussion inside on exactly the kinds of questions I've just raised. Because I'll, I'll tell you, if it was a, uh, one thing, if it was a slam dunk and we, we were to say, okay, if, we, if we, would, we were just to start charging for the website, all of our problems would be over. I think you know what decision we would have made, um, but but it's not. It's much more complex than that. Um, the, you know, no one has a crystal ball into the future, and so we have to be as 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 certain as we possibly can in an uncertain world before we 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 pull this trigger. Because the times on the web is a very big business now. It's not some startup anymore. It's got a lot of people. And and it makes a lot of money, and on an incremental basis it's very, very profitable. So, you know, it's it's not just simply a matter of pulling the trigger and taking a chance. You have to understand what you're doing. So I apologize for the hedge, but we haven't yet made the decision. (laughs) Well, we'll
0: ask again before we're done. Okay. Thanks, Joel. Alberto, to describe your strategy in its crudest terms, I guess it's almost as if you throw things up at the wall and see if anything sticks in your digital experiments. What has what has stuck of all the things you funded has you know Spot Us and other things you've described. I know about those. Has anything uh, have you funded something that shows that it could have a lasting beneficial effect
4: on the journalism world? I, I think we funded well. I, I first want to make a comment on something that Martin said because I think you, to use your web, the the web giveth and the web taketh. I, I think I think the, you're right about where I agree with you about where uh, the times and a handful and less than a handful of others uh, are likely to go. But there's I think going to be because of the efficiency of the medium, there are going to be once. Once those things are proven, uh, once you've tried them at great risk, there are going to be lots of other people doing local news uh, that I think will be able to do it very efficiently, very quickly, and will, and and um, and for a lot with a lot less risk and a lot less money. That's actually where we operate. Um, not, I don't think we've we've uh, seen anything. Uh, or tried to find anything that is going to be the next big thing. That's something that the Associated Press is going to have to figure out. The New York Times is going to have to figure out. But you uh, did find something that was sold for $10 million. But we did find, but we did do, yeah, every block uh, was an idea uh, to take readily available information but not really accessible information uh, that's that's available in any community about community meetings, about uh, zoning, about who, who uh, contributed to what campaign, what crime there's been in your neighborhood, and put it all in a really intuitively easy map. By itself, that's not going to change journalism. I think, in fact, its greatest value is as an additional kind of information uh, for a news site. But the market has found... Uh, that there is value and after and even after because I said we actually require our grantees to disclose uh, the code or, or whatever it is they've been working on even after disclosing the code on that project a month and a half later they sold the company for Reportedly eight to ten million dollars, so uh, that's not going to change journalism But it's an, but it's interesting that a project that begins just as an idea as part of a contest uh, in a relatively short period of time, uh, uses the money from the contest to prove the concept and then sells the company to, in that case, MSNBC.
0: We, we can take some questions for the audience. There are two microphones here. And while people are coming up, I'll ask if anybody wants to respond again to anything that was said. A couple of questions. Let's start here.
1: Uh, yeah. Hi. I've got a, a question for
3: Martin. Um, first of all, the New York Times website, I think it's great. Thank you. Um, I, really I get my news essentially from this each morning, right, and I read your website, and I generally don't click through to ads or do anything like that. How do you make money off of me? And I'd be willing to pay, but it just doesn't seem like I'm contributing, and I'm just wondering how you're – is it through data mining, or what, how do you profit? No, I mean, uh, for, with the, the, is that an iPhone you have? I can't yeah, quite see. Yeah. It. Okay. So the iPhone app um, is something we put out there, in essence, to build a constituency around. We've, we've had over 2 million people download the app. We now have an audience, and I think we're in a position now to start charging for that application. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the problem with just charging from out of the gate is that you don't get much trial when you do that, and... Um, you know now that we 've built a you know, significant constituency i think we 're in a much better position uh, you know to 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 charge when we want to I think the the idea of um, uh, and I, you know i i, I don't i, I tr- we truly haven 't made a decision about the website, but i don 't think that we would want to have uh, assuming that we did go ahead with a decision to charge a highly fragmented set of products i, I think the the, the 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 much easier way to go would be to have a digital pass that would allow people to use whatever platform they wanted for one price um that's just speculation i'm not, I'm not announcing anything so don't don't take that to the i'm just suggesting that you know that's been a so you know you you might pay one price and be able to use the iphone app the website whatever else you wanted to use so so we do plan to to monetize those those offline devices and you know, as I said when I, when I did my little talk, um, I, I, I truly believe we're on the cusp of a revolution, a technological revolution, with respect to these slates. Um, the, the iPhone is just the first one. And I do believe a vibrant uh, advertising ecosystem is going to grow up around them. So I, 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 I'm very excited about, you know, about the future for these things.
4: This question is for anybody who'd like to answer. What do you think of the state of unpaid citizen journalism today? I think it's erratic. Um, I think it. it uh, some of it is. Uh, some of it is wonderful and and exposes things that uh, uh, that mainstream media has missed. Uh, a lot of it. Uh, to go back to the to what I talked about with Tim Berners Lee, a lot of it simply is. Uh, whether malicious or or or, uh, or not, uh, is really opinion masquerading as reporting. Um, so I think you really uh, you really need to be you really need to be very very careful. And I, uh, the you know the analogy that I drew about the, the post Gutenberg time really really is really holds. And there was a time when suddenly all kinds of people were able to print. All kinds of people were able to get. Books that had not been able to get them before, and how did they first know what to trust? How did they first know um, how to vet, how to how to do the the full, accurate, and the fair, accurate, contextual search for truth? I think there's a real, there's a real, uh, there's a huge value to the journalism, the, the fact-based journalism uh, that I think everybody on this panel really prizes. Um, but I I think right now the uh, the uh, uh, how should I say the, the 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 question I I think is not so much are there a lot of uh, are there a lot of irresponsible participants uh, but how do you preserve the one how do you uh, preserve and and foment the ones that are actually delivering uh, the news you can use, the news that you can
1: trust, the news that's reliable. I I think that I I agree with that first of all, but I also think the potential is significant. Yeah. Um, if we can learn how to channel it to um, uh, separate the uh, wheat from the chaff, as as Mark Twain is rumored to have said about editors, so he said. Editors separate the wheat from the chaff and publish the chaff. Um, uh, I think our goal would be to publish the wheat.
4: <laughs> and, and, Tim, and Tim Berners-Lee's goal would be to let you decide which is, the, which is the wheat and which is the chaff, which ultimately is what we've always been doing. We just knew how to do it better when the world had a different kind of order.
5: Uh, I, I want to follow up on the comment about the iPhone. So a year ago I switched from a trio to the iPhone. I had no concept of the New York Times app as relevant. I've been a New York Times reader for 40 years. The, the, iPhone, the New York Times the iPhone is radically more valuable than the New York Times in print for three reasons. One, the form factor is, is much easier. To, you can take it places. You can read it. Second, you get it in real time. And third, it saves you the time that you would might otherwise spend listening to the radio on the news or, God forbid, certainly nobody I know watches the evening news. But if you did, you don't have to do that anymore. So if you were thinking like a Silicon Valley person, you'd be thinking about how to take all the revenue from all these sources that you're displacing, instead of what I would call the kind of whining, with respect, that one generally hears now from the journalism world these days. And having a hundred software developers, I was very optimistic <laughs> until I heard that one. That that. It, 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 it reflects a view of the world that's just upside down. There's 100,000 software developers within a 10-mile radius of here who could solve your problems, who could show you how to monetize uh, location-based data. I mean, that, that's, that's
3: not fair. I mean, we, we have, we, if, if you knew what you were talking about, you know that we had open apis you know that we, you know that we have business rules around those apis you know that you might know that you know hundreds of software developers around the country thousands of them in fact write to those apis but the fact is that as a journalistic organization we can't simply depend upon those software engineers to manage our business for us and we, we do need that. we do, so we do need developers inside of the company to help create the journalism that we have to put out on a daily basis. I mean, otherwise, we wouldn't have a website. So, you know, it's not fair to say, I mean, if, it's, it's simply not fair to say that open, you know, our, our APIs are a substitute for our development staff. I don't think that's true. That's not what I said. Well, don't, I mean, you don't, implied don't,
5: that. I didn't imply it at all. I don't even know what you just said. It's nothing to do with what I was saying. What I was saying is that the mindset that there is an answer and we have to find the answer. It's not viable, it's a time of experimentation, there has to be openness. Every organization that employs a large IT organization, by its nature tries to build more things itself and exclude more external providers. It's, that's pandemic is n- nothing specific to the New York Times. So if you, if you want to be open, it requires a, uh, it, fewer internal IT people make you more open. It's not a personal criticism and it's not unfair, it's, it's universally understood. The, the time is one where nobody knows the answer, and the people who will, what, what I'm suggesting to you as your friend, is you couldn't possibly have known a year from now how fundamental the iPhone could be for you. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how you're going to monetize it. Monetizing it with exactly the same model as the website strikes me as a real sub-optimization, but if you you want to consider that unfair, then I would say no. no I mean, to get
0: valuable input from You know, people. it sounds like you two have completely different <laughs> philosophies, and you're both going to leave the room with those different philosophies. <laughs> I, Maybe you we know, should move on. Uh, yeah. Okay. I guess so. Sir.
6: I'm so glad to see that Gutenberg got into this conversation. Um, I wonder if he worried that much about form over function. I think that his uh, probably said, hey, we're going to bring the Bible to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I think that was it. Um, but I'd like to ask the gentleman from the Times. You mentioned there were 1,200 reporters at the New York Times? Roughly, yeah. Uh, when was that? When was that? that yes. is,
3: that's presently. So, 1,200 sure, journalists.
6: 1,200 journalists now yeah. at the New York Times? Yeah. Have they cut anybody lately or laid off anybody?
3: We oh. announced a buyout this week I of thought so. 100 yeah. journalists. So, so we, have, we have 1,250 today we will be going down to 11.50. That's what we announced.
6: So. so any of them moving over to your internet site or anything? Just like that. They're getting rid of reporters, which seems to me the reporters are the backbone of news. I mean, the key word of newspaper, the key part of it is news, I, not newspaper,
3: I, I not agree. paper. Yeah, I agree with you. The, the, the buyouts can come from any part of the newsroom. They don't have to come from reporters. They, they will likely come from some digital, d- digital folks, as, as we've said. So it's, it's not, we're not suggesting that they're only going to come from reporters.
6: Well, does anybody think that this is the end of the beat reporter? That's what we're basically seeing here. The well, person I'm, that covers a beat all the know, time and...
3: The, the only thing I would say is that with 1150 journalists at the New York Times, I think we have almost twice the number of journalists a, a, of any other news organization in the United States today. So. Maybe one of my other colleagues could answer that question better than I. I, I.
1: No, I mean I think look, you cut the size of the new staff, um, uh, you reduce your sure. capability, but with 1,150 people um, uh, in the newsroom, the new, York, the new York Times could still support a hell of a lot, of, a hell of a big beat structure. So um, the beat structure is not going away with with um, this cut. At, some point he could, but not with not with this cut. But I,
4: I think I think where 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 you are seeing it go away is in uh, in regional newspapers and in local newspapers. The newspapers that used to have uh, five reporters at city hall, that might have one and might go uh, only occasionally. Bob Schieffer actually the other day was telling me his brother was running for governor of Texas. He went to Corpus Christi. The the, the reporter from. Uh, I don't know which newspaper was there and said it's a good thing you came on. Uh, I don't know whether it was a Thursday or a Friday. It's a good thing you came on this day because I only work part-time. I'm the political reporter. Right. So there, the, there, are, there are lots of newspapers, lots of newspapers. I'd say a majority of newspapers where uh, the, those beats that used to be uh, very well um, – uh, attended or are, are simply uh, either non-existent or, uh, or are very very thin. I actually really believe that that's why we have to hurry up and make sure that every everybody has digital access so that there is a, there is the possibility uh, to have demand uh, for where I think we're going. I think we're going digital, I think we're going mobile and I think the more the sooner we have the entire country able to access that, uh, the sooner we create the models and can create the models that will sustain the BEAT reporting uh, that once used to be only on paper.
6: Good. I'm glad to see that because a lot of BEAT reporters have been laid off. Thank you.
0: Sir, sure. A short question for Martin. What do you think of Google News and also news aggregation? That's a good, qu- it's a good
3: question. The question mind. is, what do I think of Google News and news aggregation? Um, and it's a, it's a very, very important question um, uh, because needless to say, you know, some of the aggregators, many, all of the aggregators essentially depend upon existing news content for their lifeblood. Um, I, I think that uh, um, for the most part, most news aggregators are, are healthy for, for the overall business. They, they provide value. Um, they send traffic to the various websites that they aggregate. I think where the the line gets difficult is when the aggregator begins to stretch the boundaries of fair use to the point where the they 're no longer aggregating, and essentially they're you know they're they 're taking copyright so um, you know I, I think the, the whole notion, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but the whole notion of fair use in the digital age, and in this context, is, is you know, one that that I think we need to examine carefully and understand the implications of. Um, with respect to Google News, um, you know, it's it's a tough one. Uh, you know, Google News sends a, a lot of traffic to to the New York Times. Uh, they they take snippets. They don't you know they don't you know, take vast parts of our, our, our content. I know a lot of my colleagues are, are you know, v- very, very against Google News. And I can't say that today I feel, I feel that way. I mean, I think that we can exist. I think the, the Times website provides a completely different value proposition to the user than does Google News. And I think the two can exist side by side. But, you know, I, I can certainly understand it if someone were, were to think that that was a naive, you know, a naive reaction
0: else want to comment on that? All right, we'll take the questions from the people standing now, but we're
7: about out of time, so uh, your turn.
0: Uh, You
7: gentlemen have talked a lot about the national reporting and the national media. What about these regional media outlets? I've been a broadcast and a newspaper reporter, and uh, nobody's hiring right now. I mean, the places that are hiring are small places like Eureka up in Humboldt County. I mean, when do you think that like the San Francisco Chronicle is in a hiring freeze, do you think they will hire again? Or is it going to be something where we have to wait till the people that retire and then people move in? Or are they going to cut those people when they retire? And what's going to happen with, like, the San Francisco Chronicle and these smaller media outlets other than the New York Times and these uh, nonprofits that you're talking about?
1: I, I can't com- comment on the Chronicle specifically, but, I, you know, I think that where I would be looking... Um, Right now, for growth is not to um, the traditional metro papers, particularly in lar- larger cities like San Francisco where where they are still reeling from the destruction of their uh, business model and have not reached an equilibrium the, the they're, they're trying to catch a falling knife because their revenues keep um, uh, going down, but it's with um, the uh, uh, Web-only startups. Um, uh, I mean, Alberto mentioned Voice of San Diego. Um, uh, Knight is also. I think I heard you say your uh, Knight is helping to fund um, this um, uh, Texas Tribune, which is uh, a new web-only startup that will cover the political economy of Texas for the entire the entire state. There are. Um, uh, jobs being created um, at, at really small, um, I- incredibly small, and smaller still institutions. But there, but there are a growing number of them, and I think it's it's worth looking there before you look at um, existing institutions that are still trying to cope with this.
7: Um, what for
1: them is a is a total disaster.
7: So you think places like that are going to ride out the storm and be there for the long term, or I, I think some, uh,
1: mm-hmm. s- some will. I think that, that some are finding um, that they can be viable right out of the right out of the starting gate, and, mm-hmm. and, and so they don't know. have a storm to uh, they don't have a storm to ride out. Now, they don't pay the way mm-hmm. profitable metro newspapers used to pay, but they provide an opportunity to do good reporting.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't give up on working for um, a newspaper or television station. Um, I don't think um, there's much prospect that they're ever going to grow again, or at least for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But I do believe they will be there, Mm -hmm. and um, there will be jobs. And if you're diligent, you will find one. So they still need people. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't give up hope on it.
7: Like, for example, CBS 5 here in the Bay Area, they yep. uh, just last year or the year before, they laid off, like, five of their most experienced journalists, like the guys that were, you know, been there for 20 years or more and making over $100,000, and those five are now suing the CBS 5. Yes. I mean, is that kind of the future of journalism? I mean, the younger people are good, and then when they're about 45, 50, they're laid off, or...?
2: Well, I think that it, it depends market to market, but that there is a lot of that going on for sure. Mm-hmm. And you seem like a thoughtful person, so, I mean, you really should look hard at the caliber of the institution that you want to work for and, mm-hmm. be, and look at their product and mm-hmm. see if you really want to put yourself into that mix because there are a lot of people still doing that, but mm-hmm. it can be a soul-deadening experience. And mm-hmm. um, so there may be jobs, but... They may not be the kind of jobs that you really want. Mm -hmm. I think that's the sad truth of the matter. All
8: right, thanks. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming. Uh, I'm one of the master's journalism candidates in the room, and my question uh, is going to be less about prognostication and more clarification of something you said earlier. Um, There seem to be, and please correct me if I'm wrong, a general consensus at the table that direct sources of funding from the government or or money from the government that wasn't wasn't washed through uh, deductible taxes would be less than welcome uh, at each of the outlets. Um, But it was also, uh, there was sort of a a general nod that uh, some of the holes left um, in in the reporting net, especially at the local level, uh, would happily be filled by public outlets, uh, ostensibly those who draw content from NPR, for instance. And I'm wondering, uh, there seems to me to be um, uh, a double standard between uh, allowing the holes to be filled or, or saying the holes should be filled by entities that do take e- even some money from the government versus you know, none yourselves.
2: Well, not, not entirely, because if you look at the funding sources for, um, say, public radio stations, um, most of it is member-supported from people like you and me. (laughs) Uh, It is from foundations in the community and it's from local corporations that are doing de facto advertising. It's, you know, 10 or 15 seconds of some sort of a message. And that's where most of their money comes from. And um, their government support is, I think, pretty de minimis. So I, I do believe that You could craft a scenario there where there was a good firewall between any direct government support. I think it would be naive for people to believe that um, you could take money from a state or federal government or a city government. I read somewhere about this new effort in San Francisco that I hope the person who is funding it is not in the audience tonight. but. that um, he knew Mayor Newsom and that uh, they had good hopes of getting money from the city. Well, I believe that covering City Hall and the uh, Board of Supervisors and others is an extremely important part of what journalists should be doing. And, boy, that's a prescription for a real problem at some point.
8: I guess I was curious about, um, minimal as it may be, what the acceptable amount, I mean, there seems to be a gray area between acceptable amount and none at all, and what's the right hand that that government could take um, I'll take my answer it's, it's like uh,
1: pornography you know it when you see it I yeah but I, I but I, I think
4: I think you, I think you you really overstated the uh certainly you didn't state correctly my view my view is not that public tele that public radio or and certainly not public television uh is going to fill the kinds of gaps that are left by the by the the layoffs at the San Francisco Chronicle or uh, or the potential, uh, uh, the the you know the demise of the the Rocky Mountain News in Denver, or anything like that. I think, I think it's going to be it's going to be done by uh, whether it's nonprofit or for profit, but it'll be done by private enterprise, and it'll be done uh, by people doing it on the web, by people doing it uh, for mobile devices, for people doing it um, uh, for 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 web uh, enabled devices, not. By public radio and not by public television, which, in any case, even if even if you had um, uh, an absolutely a totally impossible kind of increase of funding, um, would still only reach a very very small percentage. So I think those holes that uh, that you're talking about will get filled. I think they'll get filled to some extent. Uh, after, after uh, Phil and after the New York Times and after Paul gets done figuring out some of the some of the model kinds of issues, other people will say, "Ah, oh, so that's the kind of thing that works. If it works on that kind of scale, maybe it also works on uh, on a uh, smaller, more modest scale. But for the scale of my neighborhood or my city, I think that's why the advice I would give the person before is." Yeah, I think Phil gave him really good advice on the kind of company. You don't want to join a company whose values uh, you don't share, a newspaper or any kind of a group. But I think you ought to be looking at, uh, at, uh, at a lot of these startups. And some of them have already failed. The Chi-Town Daily News is already closed. Um, that's the way it works. Some of them will succeed and some of them will not. Last two
9: questions, right here. So I've been a television reporter for the last 10 years. I've just survived two rounds of layoffs, and I have no idea when the next one's going to hit. Like the newspapers, we've watched our audience slowly drift away from their TV sets and sit down at their computers and their mobile devices instead. And we're struggling with a lot of the same things that print journalism is, but there's one other thing we're struggling with. And that is that even when you take the stories that we're reporting on our TV stations and put them on the internet, people are very resistant to watching streaming video because they see that little clock down in the corner and they say oh four minutes that's way too long and they turn it off. So my question for you gentlemen is where does video storytelling fit into the picture of the multimedia journalism landscape?
1: I mean I think it's huge. Yeah. Um, and you know it's like anything else I mean you know, a lot of people on the web have the attention span of a cockroach you've got to you've Got to get it to them in two minutes, um, and and look, how many times have you had a news director say to you, uh, "I'm sorry, I'm not going to take four minutes on this. You know, get it down, get it down to two. And you do it. You can, you can uh, tell a story at at, uh, at least some stories at, at that level. The the but the the web is very friendly to um, uh, to video, and and uh, I think it's going to be increasingly important. Um, you're using, I'm sure, much more video than oh, yeah. than you've ever we'll, used. We'll before.
3: produce 2,000 video segments this year. I mean, we're we're we have one of the largest channels on YouTube. I mean, it's, it's completely yeah. In, in, in your experience, like,
9: what leads people to click on that video versus just reading the copy that's on the page? The the,
3: the integration with the the article. In other yep. words, we what I was trying to say before about the the. The way that we're approaching the, the new integrated newsroom is that we don't have a silo called video and a silo called news anymore. We have them together. And so that when we create an article, we, put, we embed the So the David Rhodes stuff that, that we've been doing this week, I don't know whether any of you have been reading it. just amazing, amazing stuff. One. Amazing. Thanks. Um, we, you know, we've been integrating videos with David into those articles and that stuff gets just really hot and and we, we 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 tease those videos at the top of the homepage you know in in the kind of lead picture position and when you do that and you've got you know tons and tons of traffic to that position people will will click and but it's it's look, it's it's very very challenging to uh, transform what everyone views as a you know text based print based organization to one that you know, to get, to get them even used to the idea that they can view video on our website. It's taken a long time. May
2: I say one last thing to this young man who um, my sympathies for your, your downsizing. You really need to adjust your thinking. I've spent most of my life in local television. I know it extremely well. Um, the Internet is not a zero-sum game. You don't have to be number one. You don't have to beat somebody else to be successful. You need to figure out what your cost structure is, how you can deliver a quality product for the revenue or the income from whatever source you can generate. And when you do that, you're liberated from the concerns that you expressed. Let people choose to watch four minutes or ten or two. And you've got to put your television thinking behind as you move, if you do move, to some new platform like the web.
0: Last question. Hi. uh, Good evening. Thanks
1: for coming. Uh, I have a question regarding the structure of the the newsroom at The Times. Uh, So besides the physical, you know, integration, I was interested if you could talk about the specifics in terms of if there is, you know, a sort of centralized content planning thing, uh, how many of the journalists actually produce uh, digital stuff, you know, in terms of picking up a camera and also an, if they're doing an interview, you're also doing it's, a, a video. That's a good clip. question. Yeah,
3: really uh, good question.
1: Especially like if there's stuff that's produced first on the website and then you
3: know it kind of becomes either a long feature or something uh, in the print. Yeah. Um, well, I think we're I, the reason I said that it was a long journey is because it it has it, it is going to take more time to insinuate all of these resources on on a desk level. Um, but but that's really the goal. The goal is to have you know the, the the desks have kind of full multimedia, full digital resources. Um, right now, you know, a, a fellow named Jim Roberts is is our kind of digital news editor. He takes care of the website. He has a, a, a folks around him who are updating the website throughout the day, taking copy in and 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 making it making it work on the web. And we ha- we also have a, a a team of folks who work with the desks. Um, for example, when, when a, a, a new story is pitched and, a, and, and a, again, the David road idea, the, the, the video team will come in and work with, with that particular desk to, to bring that to life. So we're not yet at the stage where we have, you know, all of these resources completely mapped to every every desk, and I'm not sure we'll ever – I'm not sure that's, that's, that's really ever going to be completely practical. but. Um, I think we're moving down the road where, you know, the desk heads should take more and more responsibility for the, um, you know, the, 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 the full report um, as, as it comes out both on, on, the, on the web and in, in, in print.
1: So is there, is there one centralized multimedia desk? Or
0: there
3: is. Yeah. yeah. Today there is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry if I didn't make that clear.
0: Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.